You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right, well, if you have a Bible with you, open to Psalm 73, where we're going to be continuing our series this morning on doubt. What does it mean to be a person of faith when you experience doubt? Um, This is a we're picking up sort of the middle part of this psalm, and I'm excited to get a chance to talk with you about it this morning because I found that doubt is a question that so many of us wrestle with, whether we're new to church or we've been a Christian a long time. And it's something that I think really crosses different generational boundaries, age boundaries, gender boundaries, experiences of life. And I think it's something that we can all kind of relate to and, and wrestle with together. And I'm especially glad we get to talk about that because I know that uh, our student ministries are here today uh, because we had... Some stuff happened with student ministry, so there's no separate students class. So if you're a middle schooler or a high school student and you're hanging out uh, with old folks like me today, uh, we're glad you're here. And I think this is a really a good message for you to think through too, and a good passage of scripture for you to think through too. Though I admit I am neither as funny or as fun as Randy and Jason. So and you can text them that and tell them I said that. All right, well, uh, just to recap uh, on the first part of Psalm 73 uh, that we talked about a couple weeks ago. This psalm is really about Asaph's journey of doubt. And what does he do with the fact that it seems like a lot of really great things happen to really terrible people in the world? Asaph was a, a worship leader. He was kind of like a professional religious person during the time of King David. So that made him one of the most religious people during one of the easiest times to be religious in Israel's history. And you'd think that in that case, he wouldn't have had a lot of doubts or a lot of questions. But this psalm is filled with questions that Asaph asked that 3,000 years later, we're asking the same sorts of things. Why does it seem like wicked people, people who don't care a lick about God, who oppress others, who take advantage of things, why do they seem to get ahead when good people seem to fall behind? That doesn't seem fair. Does God see that and not care? Does God not notice? Is God not real? Why does it seem like good things happen to bad people? And that's not just a a theoretical objection for Asaph. We talked about this last time. For Asaph, this is a deeply personal question because Asaph realizes it doesn't come out of just his head, but out of envy in his heart. He says in verse three, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For Asaph, his doubts about God's goodness were really rooted in his desire to have what the wicked had. He realized about himself that he was coveting or envious of the good things that wicked people were getting. And that's where his doubts were coming out of. Now, does that mean that everyone's doubts come out of a place of envy? No, but, but they did for, for Asaph. And it's worth asking the question, are our doubts coming out of a place of envy as well? Well, we pick up the psalm here in verse 10 and sort of the middle part where Asaph begins to look around, not just at the wicked, but the other people near him. And he begins to notice how their doubts are impacting him and how his doubts impact others as well. And that's what we're going to talk about today of how do we experience doubt in relationship with other people? You know, for Asaph, the the first week we talked about the roots of his doubts in his own heart. Now we're going to talk about how those doubts move outward to the people around us. Because we all believe in community. We believe with other people uh, around us, whether those are family members or friends, people in our church, people online. Who are the people that we believe or doubt with together? That's what Asaph's going to talk about here in verse 10. So let's pick it up in verse 10, uh, in Psalm 73, verse 10. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. 
Asaph says, I look around me, I look at my neighbors, I look at the, the, the chosen people of Israel, what he calls here his people, meaning God's people, and they turn back to the wicked. That's where they look for guidance, that's where they look for direction, and that's where they look for exoneration. He says in verse 11, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Asaph looks at his neighbors and he sees his doubts in their heart as well. Now, there's a question we obviously can't answer, which is, how much is Asaph making this up in his own head? Is he anticipating doubts that are really there in his neighbors? Or is he just assuming that people are wrestling with the same thing he's wrestling with? That's sometimes a question that, that we think too. You know, we tend to assume other people think like us. Maybe Asaph is assuming that his neighbors are thinking like him. But let's just assume for the moment that he's right, that, that he's articulating these doubts that are really there in his neighbors' minds. And he sees in them the same questions he'd had of why do the wicked get away with it and why are their lives so perfect? Now, we talked a couple weeks ago that Asaph is maybe a little prone to exaggeration, as we are still today. We tend to exaggerate and idealize the lives of other people around me. I talked to someone at the last service who said, man, I think other people's babies are always sleeping perfectly and mine are always screaming. And I laughed and I was like, I think all our babies are always screaming, right? We, we tend to look at other people's lives and think that their lives are idealized compared to ours. And Asaph's doing the same thing here. If you look up at verse four, he's, he looks at the wicked. He says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. By the way, a little example of how culture has changed. I don't think I'd ever say you're looking fat and sleek today, but maybe a little different cultural there. Verse five, they are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Asaph's observing something that's, that's generally true, that the wicked tend to get away with things that we wish they didn't get away with, but he way exaggerates the case. He assumes that their lives are perfect and compared to his own frustrations and uh, anxieties in life. And because of that, that is a seed of envy and doubt that takes root in his heart. And he says, I look around at my neighbors and we're wrestling with the same thing. We're wrestling with how our doubts, uh, how God could be good in the midst of these doubts that we're harboring. These doubts take root in Asaph in a really dark way in verse 13, and probably the emotional low point of the psalm. He says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. By the way, um, if you're planning a wedding, I don't recommend that verse. Like that is, this is not a happy verse, right? Um, I've kept myself clean and, and I've washed my hands in innocence. I've been stricken every morning, rebuked every morning. Everything has gone wrong, even though I'm a perfect person. Now, let's lay aside the self-righteousness here for a second. Like, Asaph, have you really been perfect? Like, you've done nothing wrong, and yet you are, it's so hard being you. You know, it's, Asaph's laying it on pretty thick here, right? But his general point is something that a lot of us have felt of, am I wasting all my time on this? Am I wasting all my energy on this? Am I, am I really following God for nothing? Like, I look at my wicked neighbors or my, my, Wicked seems like a strong term. It's the word Asaph uses. I look at my secular neighbors. I look at my skeptical neighbors. I look at people out there in the world that don't seem to give a lick about God. And their lives seem as good as mine or better. Like, it feels like I, I've wasted all this effort. I don't know if that's a doubt that you've wrestled with. But for Asaph, it's a doubt that was the front of his mind. And so then the question becomes, like, well, 
why keep following God? If it doesn't make your life demonstrably better than the lives of people who don't, what's the point of doing it? And Asaph, in this dark moment, starts to be ready to throw up his hands and say, maybe it's not. All right, well, that's it for today. I'll see you later. No, we're, we're not going to end there. But. but it is a real question. It's a question that, that Asaph is wrestling with, and he assumes that the people around him are wrestling with as well. Now, we'd like to think that that Asaph is wrestling with this as an individual because we're an individualist culture. But the psalm itself shows that Asaph is is thinking about these things in community, that the doubts of others are perpetuating his own doubts. That as he listens to their problems and their objections, it it, uh, takes the doubts that he's expressed earlier in the psalm and only strengthened them and made them more cold-hearted towards God. This is important to note because the doubts of others do impact us. The experiences of others uh, who fall away from God or walk away from God, they do impact us. As Americans, we'd like to think that, you know, I believe what I believe because I believe it, right? I'm, I've, I've thought this through on my own. This is my faith. I own it. It's my own individual choice. And certainly as believers of Jesus, we do need to make a personal decision to follow Jesus. There is a personal part that is extremely important. But as Americans, we also tend to overrate individualism and over-exaggerate how much uh, we think for things we think of things by ourselves. The professor at Baylor, Alan Jacobs, has a line in one of his books that I found really helpful. He says, "You know, the line that that we say, I'm so glad that person is thinking for themselves, is usually coded language for I'm glad they're now thinking like me, because there's no real." thinking for ourselves. We're, we're always thinking in community, and I would add believing in community with others. And when it comes to doubt, we're doubting in community with others as well. You and I are impacted by the doubts and skepticisms of people around us, just as Asaph was. Now, does that mean that we cut ourselves off from people with doubts and skeptics? Oh, oh of course not. Uh, Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. As Christians, we're, we're called to be an encouragement to one another, especially in, po- in moments of doubt, of despair, of discouragement. We're not called to, to cut people off who are doubting, but to move towards them. But we also need to be aware of the way the doubts of others impact us. Some of you guys have had these stories, right? Maybe, you're, maybe your parent was really important in your coming to faith as a child, and then later as an adult, they walked away from the faith. How could that not shape your view of God and of what it means to relate to him? Or maybe you had a, a religious leader, a, a pastor, or a, a group leader, or a youth pastor, someone who was really foundational in your faith and taught you a lot about the Bible. And then uh, they did something heinous or wicked, and it turned out that they were uh, more of a predator than a pastor. How could that not shape your faith, and how could their doubts not impact you? On a more, uh, on a gentler level, but more of a perpetual level, Some of us surround ourselves with voices of doubters. We listen to podcasts or we follow social media feeds of people who sort of continually chip away at our faith and chip away at our faith. And it doesn't help us move forward on any of those doubts, but it kind of just is a layer of ash that we put on our soul every day. How could those things not impact us and not reshape us? Well, the first half of the Psalms been pretty dark, uh, but it starts to lift a little bit in verse 15. Because Asaph, for the first time, begins to take his eyes off himself and look towards others. In verse 15, he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. This is sort of the first time that Asaph, instead of looking at his neighbors with envy, begins to look at them with compassion and with love. 
And he realizes, if I just let out all these doubts and let out all this anger and let out all this lack of concern, all I'm going to do is bleed all over people who are going to be wounded by it. Instead of helping them, I'm going to be hurting the very people that I was called to lead. Because Asaph's doubts are going to impact the people around him. Asaph's tempted to do what we're often tempted to do, which is to just give voice to our frustrations with God or our anger with God or our confusion about God. And believe me, that is a good thing to do. After all, he writes a psalm about it, encouraging us to pray these very doubts towards God. But there's this tremendous bit of wisdom in verse 15 where he says, if I had just said all this, uncontained, unprocessed, undealt with, I would have betrayed a generation of your children, right? These people belong to God, especially he's talking about a next generation of people who are relying on him for leadership, uh, people who are looking to him to protect them and to provide for them. If you're a leader, this is a challenging verse and one that you really need to take a serious thought about. If you're a life group leader, if you're a Stephen minister, if you're an elder here, if you serve in, in our student ministries, children's ministries, this is a question you need to think about. What does voicing your doubt do to the people that are following you? Uh, how are you honoring your leadership to them in expressing your moments of frustration or anger towards God? Now, again, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying to just stuff the doubt away, right? Asaph provides a really helpful template of expressing these things to God and being able to, to process them in community. But that's very different than as a parent going home and venting about your church to your eight-year-old, right? It's a very different sort of thing. Well, it's a very different thing as a grandparent saying that you're going to complain about all the religious hypocrites in this world and confusing your grandkids, right? If you're a leader in the light and the spiritual lives of others, you need to think about how expressing your doubts, what impact that has to the people around you. And I know social media is like the whipping boy today, but I'm going to just keep going back to it. This includes what we post online and what we express outwardly to the world and in sort of letting vent to our anger and in the process betraying some of God's children. Now, I, I feel this acutely as a pastor because it's my job, but it's not just a pastoral question. It's for all of us who have spiritual leadership and spiritual influence on the lives of others. Um, now, some of you object to this and you say, but I don't want just the sanitized version of my parents' doubts or the sanitized version of a pastor's doubts. I want people who will be real with me. I want people who will be honest about what they're really wrestling with and what they're really dealing with. And I mean, I do too. And you don't get more real or honest than Asaph in Psalm 73. He talks about really deep and dark places of his heart that a lot of us aren't willing to go with. But it's really different to get that sort of honest and contained example that, that Asaph gives us that's really, that's really different than just a snarky sort of complaining, venting that we usually get online. That's not very connecting, it's not very honest, and it's not really helpful. Um, Asaph gives us an example here of not stuffing our doubts, expressing them, but expressing them in a way that honors God and helps the people that we're leading. On the alternative, you can imagine if Asaph had not written this psalm. If instead he had just become a bittered worship leader who complained to the people around him, who sort of took the safer and easier path of finding those who had no real influence and couldn't really call him to any sort of accountability and just sort of said, uh, you know, this isn't all real, right? Or uh, David's such a hypocrite. Do you know what he does in the, in the, in the palace? He doesn't really care about God, right? You can, it's not that hard to think about how Asaph could have become a really destructive force uh, in the spiritual life 
of his generation in ways that were self-protective, but harmed the people he was called to serve and lead. And Sidi gives us this wonderful model, this wonderful example of vulnerability and expressing his doubts in a way that honors those he's leading. Well, I said Asaph is beginning to lift his eyes out of the pit here when he sort of starts talking about when to, how his doubts are going to impact other people. But it really comes to a culmination here in verse 16 and 17. This is where we'll finish today. He uh, talks about how community worship really reshapes his doubts. This is what verse 16 said. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Asaph says, I've been trying to think through this problem of why does God let good things happen to bad people? And honestly, it just seemed like too much. It seemed like a wearisome task. And you might underline there in verse 16 or or might notice, especially in verse 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Left to his own devices, left to his own individuality, left to all that he had just in his own self, he says, this is too much. This is a wearisome task. It's more than I have to figure this out. Left on our own with our doubts, with no help from community, our doubts can feel like a thousand pounds on our shoulders. And I imagine some of you here came to church with that kind of feeling. Like, I don't know why I'm here. I'm, I, I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if, if I'm one of these people. I don't know that I want to believe this. And the doubts, like Asaph, felt like a wearisome task for you. But Asaph, and here's really why, where the psalm turns, throws himself into the sanctuary and, and, and sort of casts himself on God's mercy. And that is where his faith turns 180 degrees. The rest of the psalm, which we'll finish up next week, talks about how his whole perspective has changed as a result of this. How after coming to the sanctuary, his, his, uh, his fears and his hopes and his perspective on the wicked change completely. And the rest of the psalm almost doesn't seem like it's the same writer. And it all pivots. Every commentator says it pivots right here on verse 17. His going into the sanctuary to discern the end. So why? Why would going to the sanctuary or you know, it's kind of a fancy way of saying going to church, have such a profound impact on Asaph? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I'm going to start with the most obvious one because let's start easy. Uh, why does the sanctuary change Asaph's perspective so much? Well, because God is there. Because God is there. Asaph wrestles with God with God. Now, I know that sounds obvious, but I, I told you it would. Um, but it's not to be missed, right? That Asaph doesn't try to just uh, say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out on my own. He goes to God with his questions about God. He's going to figure this out, not in a position of neutrality, if such a thing existed, but rather a position of intimacy with the God that he's curious about. I, I say this is obvious, but a lot of us, in my experience, don't do this. I, I've had a lot of conversations as a pastor that grieve my heart over the years where people say, you know, I'm just going to take a step back from church for a while. I'm not sure what I believe, but I just need some space to figure this out. I need some space away from all of this and away from all of you to figure out what's really true. And I, and I get that because, I mean, spoiler alert, like, I'm trying to help encourage your faith in God, right? So, like, this is not a neutral environment, right? Like, I'm trying to help people move towards God. And so I get that people feel like, oh, if I go to church, I'm sort of stacking the deck in one direction, but there is no neutral ground, right? There, there is no out there where you can sit by a river and figure this out objectively. The Bible says that in Romans 12:1, the world is trying to press us into its mold, right? There is no neutral corner that we go to in this life. 
We're either moving towards God or away from God. And so if we're honest, if we really want to wrestle through our doubts and figure them out, we'd do, it'd be wise to learn from Asaph and try to figure out, with God, figure out what life with God looks like with God rather than thinking that we can run away from him, as Jonah did, only to find out that there is no place away from God in this world. Well, um, now, let me just be clear about that, because I could come off as kind of enmeshed if you misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't mean that there's never a time to, to switch churches or to take a break from certain ministry activities you're doing. I think all those things can be really healthy and wise at times. But for Asaph, he's speaking specifically about going to find God himself. And, and that's where I think that, that we'd be wise to notice uh, why this makes such a, shi- uh, such a shift in his life. Uh, second thing, the sanctuary is not just where God is, but it's where God's people are. Now, we might be tempted if you've gone to cathedrals in Europe that are totally vacant to sort of picture the sanctuary as this empty, cavernous place where he's the only one who shows up and he's wrestling with God by himself. But that's not what the sanctuary would have been like in the Old Testament. To come into the sanctuary of God during Asaph's day would have been a crowded affair, full of people worshiping God, full of the people of God, full of people he would have known and who would have known him for a long time. It was a communal activity, a community activity, much like we are here together today. So when he says, when I sought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, he's speaking as an individual. But when he goes into the sanctuary, he believes as part of a community. You and I believe because of our own personal choice and because we are part of a believing community. The church universal throughout history and then this particular church here and now. If you put on your shoulders that you need to figure this all out by yourself without the help of anyone else, you're putting on a burden too great to bear. Uh, Paul in Galatians 6 tells us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In that passage, he's talking about the willingness to confront people who are in sin. But I think in the same way, he would say that we're to bear one another's burdens of faith. When we're in places of deep doubt and despair, or even shallow doubt and despair, it's not incumbent on you to figure it out on your own, but rather to turn to a community and believe together. Do you know that when Paul talks about the spiritual gifts that God has given the church, one of the gifts he lists is the gift of faith. There are people in this church who have been given a spiritual gift of faith in order to help you in your doubts. And some of you have doubts that exist in part, let me be careful how I say this, exist in part in order to help people who have the gift of faith honor God in their service to him by helping you. When we believe together, when we encourage one another together, we follow Asaph's example of throwing himself into the sanctuary. Last thing. So God's there, God's people are there, and then, and we'll talk about this more next week, the sacrificial system was there. You know, it's, it's tempting for us to think of the Old Testament sanctuary and think about our church, but it wouldn't have looked like this. I mean, the, no TVs for sure. Um, but the biggest difference would have been the sacrificial system. To go into the temple in the Old Testament, or, or into the sanctuary, this would have been before the temple, would have been centrally located around the sacrificial system. That was the consequences of sin showing themselves in the sacrificing of animals and birds. Now, the sacrificial system is a whole other topic for another day, and we, we can't cover it in all its detail. But it is important in this psalm because Asaph's core objection has been there are no consequences for the wicked. They get away with sin and nothing matters. Nothing happens to them. 
And he goes in and I imagine him seeing the sacrificial system and saying, ah, there is a consequence for sin. God does see, God does care, but God is gracious and patient. And I would hope, and, and we'll talk about this more next week, I would hope that Asaph's heart begins to turn here. And instead of saying, I can't believe those wicked people out there are getting away with all this, he would have realized, I, I'm one of those people. I haven't kept my heart pure every day of my life, or whatever he says in his dark moments of verse 13 and 14. I haven't, I haven't been totally pure. I, I'm in need of forgiveness as much as anyone. As Christians, we see this even more clearly because the sacrificial system points us to Jesus' death on the cross. As Christians, we see that, that the only one who had ever kept his heart pure did so not for his own exoneration, but so that he would give his life as a ransom for all of us. We read Asaph's objections about the wicked getting what they don't deserve, and we don't say, oh, that's terrible. I can't believe that happens. We humbly say, that's us. We get what we don't deserve. And not just things in this life, but much more importantly, we receive forgiveness and mercy as a result of Jesus' death in our place. All right, I said we'd end there, so let's end there. A couple questions for you to pray about and think about this week. The first one, uh, these are really simple questions, but how does the doubt of other people impact you? How does the doubt of other people impact you? Or if you want to put in the past tense, how are your doubts shaped by your experiences of others throughout your life? When have people walked away from the faith, maybe completely or maybe in part, in a way that really shaped your view of yourself and of God? Now, I'm not saying to, to cut yourself off from those, but just to be aware of those. How, how has, maybe it's, your, maybe it's your family of origin, maybe it's your parents, your siblings, how has their trajectory towards or away from God shaped your own experience of doubt? Maybe as people that you used to be part of a church with or part of a Bible study group with and, and now their faith isn't very strong anymore. How has that shaped your own experience of doubt? How has that sort of uh, helped you understand what God is at work with in your life? So that's the first question. Second question, how has the way you've expressed doubts impacted others? How has the way that you express doubt impact others? Uh, maybe it's, you're thinking in a really small term about like, how are you talking to your kids or your grandkids about your doubts and your frustrations or your questions about God? Is it helping them grow and wrestle with important things? Are you being honest and authentic in a way that, that is really life-giving for them? Or are you kind of just bleeding all over people that can't really help you or, or, or hold you to account, but it just makes you feel better about something? How are you expressing your doubts in a way that's loving and honoring to the leadership role you have in the lives of others? How are you expressing your doubts towards others in a way that moves you forward? All right, so I'd encourage you to pray through those things, reflect on those things, and I'd be happy to talk with you. Leaders of our church will be up on, uh, on your right after the service. They'd be happy to pray with you. If this takes a couple days for you to sort of think through, uh, feel free to email me or call me and be happy to have coffee and talk with you about some of these questions of doubt. Um, yeah, let's pray. God, I am uh, grateful for this psalm. I'm grateful for all the ways that sort of brings to the surface things in my own heart and in the hearts of all of us as we hear your word. God, I pray for those who are carrying really heavy doubts right now. Um, doubts maybe that are similar to Asaph's, maybe ones that are different, but, but they feel as heavy as Asaph's did. I pray that your word would help them to be honest with you and honest with people who can help them question, work through those questions and those doubts. God, we're grateful for those who are here who have the gift of faith, who 
all this talk about doubt seems like a foreign language. They, they, they believe and they trust and, and uh, they don't wrestle with doubt at all. God, may they be a gift to the rest of us. Uh, and then God, I pray for those who, who have some doubts. They don't feel like a thousand pounds, but they're there and they nag at their souls. God, I pray that uh, as, we, as we see in Asaph's example, that the experience of doubt wouldn't just be something we repress or push away, but that it would help us move closer to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.